Welcome to another episode of We Are Carbon. I'm Helen Fisher and I'm joined by Tamir Malik to hear about the journey that brought him to founding Drawdown Farm in Pakistan and the work they're doing there to produce foods regeneratively despite the challenges of desert soils and an arid climate. Tamir's background is not in farming. This action is his response to having his eyes opened to the mix of crises surrounding him in the world, from the climate to biodiversity loss, and even the roots of civil war. After much dedicated research, the conclusion that he reached was that our most impactful solution to everything is regenerative agriculture. I feel hugely inspired by the work that's been done here, not only in the successful regeneration of soils and cultivation of crops, including bananas which were thought impossible to grow in the Thal Desert, all of which you'll hear about towards the latter half of the discussion. But you'll also hear about the range of research and influences that have guided Tamir in his learning. It's an incredibly varied set of wisdom that has been brought together and somehow provided clarity and focus, rather than conflicting ideas. What a wonderful place we're in as a world to have so much information available to us, and I hope you'll feel as uplifted and motivated as I do by this story that demonstrates quite clearly we have the knowledge we need to regenerate. And with the right approach, using many tools side by side, Tamir concludes that the transition to regen ag can actually be really quick. He's very articulate at walking you through his journey, so you'll hear very little from me with the questioning through this one. I hope you'll enjoy having a listen through. New episodes of this podcast are added every other Tuesday, and you can find them on YouTube and your favourite podcasting platforms. So don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date. Right, let's get stuck in. Hi, Dimir. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate that you go to share your story here today about your journey in regenerative agriculture and working on the land. I'm really excited to get stuck in. Could you kick us off with a quick introduction to yourself and a bit of a background? Sure. Thank you so much, Helen, for having me. It's a great uh, pleasure and privilege to be here today uh, with you. Um, I will gladly give you a short intro. Um, I basically um, work in what I call large-scale integrative regenerative agriculture today. But I started my journey, I go back to my college days uh, where I was a student uh, in, uh, for undergrad at Columbia University, uh, where I had the privilege of studying South Asian and Mi- Middle Eastern and South Asian studies, um, along with some economics and finance. Uh, but really my uh, passion at the time at least was uh, Middle East studies. And Colombia was a fantastic place to be because it was a very integrative sort of a program where you studied the region from a multitude of lenses. And that's how the program was structured. You were encouraged um, to do that. And that would be the lens of economics. It could be political science, sociology, linguistics, culture, religion, um, arts, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And I think so that's important to mention because it built sort of this uh, philosophy or philosophical disposition within me of having an integrative approach to understanding things. And that was very useful later on. Um, And then after my undergrad, I worked at Citibank in New York. So I was a Wall Street man, which was uh, frankly a pretty good uh, experience as well in terms of 
learning, just being in this very large uh, corporate finance milieu and as uh, you know, you're from Britain and uh, you know what is considered to be the world's best uh, newspaper, perhaps the salmon colored financial times, their tagline is we live in financial times, which we certainly do. And so being in finance really sort of opened many eyes. I learned many things uh, about how the world operates, how finance operates and how that in turn moves the broader economy. Uh, so that was a very useful experience. Uh, but probably not the most soulful of experiences, at least not at the time. Um, and so after a few years, I felt, you know, something was amiss um, in, 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 on that front. And of course, finance has changed a great deal in many ways today and is uh, still undergoing a major transformation as we move to a, an era uh, where ESG has become a part and parcel of, of finance, where um, sustainability has become an integral part of uh, of valuations, um, and that's sort of, or, or is sort of increasingly becoming an integral part of valuations and how we value things. And that I think is going to increase as we start uh, incorporating things like biodiversity, natural capital, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that realization has tremendously increased in, in the borders of business generally, but also in finance, but that really wasn't there at all um, a few years ago. Uh, when I left uh, Wall Street. And then I moved uh, after leaving Wall Street uh, to Pakistan, where I had, uh, at the time at least, an ambition to start a, a men's, a custom men's shirting startup with a couple of brilliant co-founders, much more brilliant than myself. And also I took the reins, so that was like a side gig, if you will. I also took the reins of a textile spinning mill um, operation in Lahore, Pakistan. And at the same time, actually, just before I moved, I was blessed with my uh, first uh, born son. And uh, that was quite uh, a bit of a doozy for my wife and I, because obviously nothing prepares you for parenthood. And we were especially underprepared. Uh, and so, you know, given that uh, both my mother and my wife's mother lived in Lahore, uh, so having the grandmoms was a massive boon and, a, and, and an attraction for us to move. Um, so it sort of happened that way uh, that we ended up in Lahore. And I wasn't at the mill for too long, not uh, maybe about 10, 11-ish months or so. And then I made the switch to agriculture. And of course, we'll get in deeper into how that happened, what was the rationale or reason for that. Uh, but uh, since then, I haven't looked back. Uh, and I have been very much uh, a creature of Regen Ag well before it became the buzzword that it is today. And we'll get into sort of what was the what were the reasons why I got in, uh, how it gave me hope or meaning and a great degree of passion at the time. Um, and by the way, I'll briefly mention this, we can get into it uh, in, in, in much greater detail. At the time when my son was born, I unfortunately discovered uh, what what we now are calling climate chaos and global boiling. And I discovered the science, uh, which was extraordinarily both compelling and deeply, uh, I think, distressing would be, to put it mildly. Um, and I realized that bringing life into this planet uh, was probably not the wisest thing, uh, given the kind of chaos that had already happened. Uh, we can talk about some of those things, including the Syrian civil war. Um, in some ways, one of the reasons for the Arab Spring which later became the Arab winter um, and many other sort of chaotic events that were happening in the world, even 
sort of in 2010 and, you know, in, in the late aughts and, and beyond that, um, which were now, you know, the, the attribution science has become very solid um, and we're now attributing things to climate change, um, such as the droughts and, and wildfires and floods happening all over the world. But this has been happening for a very long time and it has been climate induced. Uh, and there was very compelling science even in 2015 when I discovered this stuff. Um, so regenerative agriculture became this great wellspring of hope for me because I realized that we have the potential to sequester all the excess carbon that is in the atmosphere, put it into soils, uh, but also while doing so, sort of fixing a multitude of what are now called polycrises, that the world is facing a biodiversity crisis, a great nutrient collapse, the broken uh, carbon cycles, but also the, global, uh, the broken phosphorus and nitrogen cycles that we have, the broken water cycle that we have. Um, so that's how I sort of uh, ended up in, in Regen Ag and haven't looked back since. That's fantastic. That's a really unique um, background that I think it just demonstrates why you've got such a valuable perspective to offer because you've got, as you described it, this integrated education that I think I really I really appreciate the value of that in terms of the, the mindset of viewing. I mean, it's sort of a, a good basis for whole system appreciation of the way the world works. And then the finance system, which is so, so important. Like you say, we, we can, we could kind of put things in boxes and separate them and say, well, I'm sort of very, very interested in the land and how, how we look after the land, but it can't be separated from the system and the society that, that we exist within. So I think that's incredibly valuable knowledge to have that is it's putting a very unique point of view together here. And when it comes to thinking about farming and agriculture, which you so eloquently um, explained is such a beautiful solution. I think that is the, the hope at the end of the tunnel. It's like this big light because people are more and more realizing that we don't need a complicated um, engineered solution. We need to get back to the land. We need to get back to the soil and all of those what seem like separate issues are so interconnected and we can resolve them and move in the right direction all at once. But when we think about farming, we so often think about food. Um, this seems to be um, the predominant area, uh, food production. But you also touched on your job at the textile mill, and I think this is a really interesting bit of background to give us some context, particularly for, for where you are in the world there in Pakistan. The growing of textiles, and I'm assuming probably this was a lot of cotton that you were growing, this, this, this offers its own unique perspective of how we're treating the land and how that impact of our lives and all of the resources that we use are having this sort of wider impact on the climate. I think it would be interesting if we start there, before we look at your own journey into farming and being on the land, what about that, that textiles mill experience opened your eyes to, to what we're doing wrong um, with our farm management? Absolutely. That's, a, that's an excellent question. Um, and really, it all began there. Uh, because had I not been there, I wouldn't be in agriculture today. Um, what happened was that when I took the reins of this textile mill, uh, I sort of pretty soon after the mill actually shut down. Uh, which was uh, probably quite ominous. So I was, it was a sign uh, that 
you know, uh, I was probably not cut out for that. <laughs> uh, no, but in all seriousness, what had happened was um, uh, cotton prices in Pakistan had gone through the roof. And this was a spinning mill. So just to give a brief backdrop of what a spinning mill does, this is one of the earlier operations of, um, of how we get sort of fabric and, and clothes that we wear. Uh, or other types of textiles, such as uh, you know, bed sheets and uh, towels. So basically what happens is that when cotton is picked, it goes to a ginning mill, which uh, converts it into bales. That's a very, very basic operation. And then from ginning, it goes to a spinning mill, which is where it's converted into thread. And so that's the kind of operation we were at. We were not growing our own cotton. We were just buying cotton from these, these sort of middlemen that are called brokers. Uh, who get the mills, uh, who get the sort of bales of cotton from different ginning mills. Um, and what a spinner does is convert it into thread. We in particular were a coarse count thread manufacturer. So that basically means that, you know, it wasn't fine, very thin kind of thread that's used in fine luxury shirting uh, or things like that. Um, this was a coarse count mill. So that thread is then used to make things like towels, hospital grade bed sheets, uh, denim, uh, you know, so those are the kinds of uh, applications for coarse count thread. It's a very commoditized business. It's very, sort of very much about keeping your input costs uh, as low as possible. It's very much about scale because it's very tiny margins. So it's really a volumes driven business. Um, and it's very, very price sensitive for input costs. And that's important to understand because when cotton prices went through the roof in Pakistan that year, uh, when I had taken over, uh, the mill wasn't economically, uh, it wasn't economically justified to run that mill. So it had to be shut down and, you know, hundreds and hundreds of laborers um, had to be let go in the operation, which was obviously very sad and cataclysmic for them. But similarly, across Pakistan, many spinning mills had to shut down because, again, it's a very commoditized, very low margin, high volume business, very sensitive to price. And there, it's only two major prices. Um, or, or costs that matter for this mill. One is energy, which also in Pakistan can be quite expensive compared to some regional peers. And that has to do with sort of governance issues in the energy infrastructure in this country. And then the second issue is cotton prices. So of course we couldn't do much about energy. We did do some energy efficiency stuff. Um, we uh, started a process of converting our all the lights in our factory floor to LEDs, um, which of course now is very mainstream, but at the time was very new in this country. Um, also, we did some analysis of, of can we defray some of our co uh, energy costs with solar power. Uh, we also started the process of getting more efficient uh, generators. We actually got, again, uh, because we are from Britain, so Rolls-Royce engines is what we got uh, to replace our aging Genbacher to convert natural gas into energy. So they were more efficient um, and therefore produce more energy with the same amount of gas. Um, but on the cotton side, that was really disturbing for me. Because as I delved deeper into why the cotton prices had increased, I realized that it was because one third of the cotton crop in that country that year in Pakistan had been destroyed by the pink ballworm, which is a pernicious cotton pest. It's a sucking pest. Um, and, you know, most people were like, you know, that's the reason we can't do anything. It's nature. But for me, having this very sort of probing uh, kind of, you know, sort of framework that I sort of briefly mentioned in my introduction meant that I wanted to go deeper and re sort of understand why uh, the pink ballworm had suddenly destroyed so much crop. 
and I realized that Pakistan uses what's called the BT cotton seed. It's a genetically modified seed where Monsanto has inserted the Bacillus thuringiensis bacteria into the seed. And the Bacillus thuringiensis is poison for the pink ballworm and a few other sucking pests. But what happens in nature is that everything develops a resistance and evolves to resist. That's how nature works. Um, and that's exactly what happened here. The pests had developed a resistance to the BT, and therefore they were able to sort of destroy so much crop. Um, and in the genetically modified paradigm, what happens is you keep coming up with newer iterations, but ultimately they also fail because, again, as I just mentioned, evolution and biology always wins. Um, so that was very disturbing for me because I realized that this is a losing battle. And the only one that really kind of gains from this are the companies that are selling GMO seeds um, because they just come up with a new iteration that they charge even more for. And, you know, farmers are essentially forced to, to get that. So what I wanted to do was just as my own sort of mental exploratory exercise, I wanted to understand, are there other ways of growing cotton? Are there systems that we can craft where we are not reliant on this paradigm, which seems to me a, a failing paradigm, because at the same time I was reading about herbicide resistance happening all across the world because herbicides, you know, because the, the different weeds were developing a resistance to various very toxic herbicides like glyphosate, dicamba, etc., which were causing all sorts of uh, deleterious human health and ecological problems, but uh, they were also developing these super weeds. So I wanted to understand, is there a paradigm that we can have that's different? And that's when I went into sort of a series of rabbit holes within rabbit holes within rabbit holes, uh, which then led me to become ultimately a regenerative farmer. Uh, but I discovered some amazing things. I, the first place I wanted to look was organic agriculture, because I knew that they don't use synthetics and GMOs. But of course, I too, much like the wider population, uh, believed... Um, you know, what's the common sort of belief that organic, while great for human health and the environment, is cannot feed the world, will always give you lower yields. Um, and here's where I discovered some fascinating things. I discovered a study from India, uh, from an Indian state called Madhya Pradesh, where an agriculture university had gone and done side-by-side -side studies of farmers growing organic cotton. They'd been 10 years organic, next to neighbors who were growing BT cotton. So, and there were multiple farmers like that, that they studied. And the conclusion they reached at the end of this sort of analysis was that the farmers growing or certified organic cotton were getting higher yields and had much lower pest pressure than their neighbors, like side-by-side -side lands who were growing BT cotton. They were having much higher incidences of pest and pest problems and their yields were lower. And so this was a massive light bulb, or should I say LED light bulb moment for me, um, because I uh, sort of, you know, it, it really shifted uh, my worldview, uh, because I came to see for the first time that maybe it's not true that organic always gives us lower yields. And that's something that is, is uh, uh, something that everybody considers to be, you know, the truth. Um, and, you know, that was an amazing sort of discovery for me. At the same time, I was reading I started reading a book on organic cotton. It was the only book I could find on Amazon. And Amazon doesn't deliver in Pakistan. Luckily, a friend of mine was getting 
Pakistani American friend was getting married in Pakistan and who's uh, he had to come to the country. So I, I, I uh, got the book shipped to him in San Francisco and he brought it with me um, and a few other books on organic agriculture. And I sort of voraciously started read, reading them and trying to understand uh, the paradigm. And what I read was very fascinating and really sort of gelled with me that in organic agriculture, you take a systemic approach to try to resolve problems. You do things like intercropping. You try to harness the power of beneficial insects. Um, you do alternative pest management techniques, such as things like pheromone traps for certain types of pests. You rely on beneficial insects, which you can purchase or you can craft systems where around your field you have sort of insectary habitats where beneficial insects uh, can thrive and they can then take care of the bad bug. So all of these things I thought were incredible because you're taking this very systemic approach. Um, and then again, uh, very perpetuously, I discovered this study by the Rodale Institute. And just to uh, inform uh, the listeners today, for those who might not know, the Rodale Institute is the sort of considered to be the oldest modern institute uh, to study organic agriculture. And they have a research farm spread out over hundreds of acres in Pennsylvania and the United States, which I've also had the privilege of being uh, at a few years ago. And in the 1970s, they started a trial side by side, RCBD trials of uh, conventional versus organic. And they came up with some very fascinating conclusions. It's the largest continuously running side by trial, side by side trial of conventional versus organic for uh, conventional for for your uh, major row crops, corn, soy, things like that, and the conclusions they've reached is that in drought years in organic, in their context in Pennsylvania, they're getting higher yields uh, than conventional, and in regular years they're getting slightly lower yields, uh, but they're more profitable, and there's obviously many other benefits from an ecological point of view and so a systemic point of view and so on. Um, well, they've also seen in these trials and later on they a few years ago also started side-by-side -side vegetable trials which after a few years hopefully they'll release probably their first report on that as well um but the conclusion they reached was that uh, you know you can sequester boatloads of carbon by doing sort of organic agriculture which is what they've been doing what they now do is a regenerative organic agriculture and we'll talk about what's organic what's regenerative organic what's just regenerative that's not organic We'll definitely get into those nuances um, in this conversation today. Um, but what they do now is regenerative organic. So the first iteration of that report was about how organic agriculture uh, can save our planet. Now, that, uh, you know, the maybe the version 2.0 or 3.0 of the report, which is on the Rodale website today, talks about regenerative agriculture, how that can save our planet. But basically, the thesis is that if just 50% of global farmland transitions towards regenerative systems, we can take all the excess carbon that's in the atmosphere and, and plop it in the soil where it belongs, where it will be enormously beneficial, not just for our planet, making our planet livable, but also for the crops that we're trying to grow. It's very systemically benefit, uh, beneficial uh, in terms of enhancing yields, enhancing um, disease and pest uh, resistance for plants and, and the crops we're trying to grow. So there's so many benefits there, and we can get into the nuances of that as well. But reading that report was really, uh, you know, sort of uh, created this enormous amount of hope in me and, and almost a, a level of delight. Um, and that's when sort of I was 
bitten by the regen act bug. So a different type of bug than the big ball worm. And, and that's when I sort of knew this is what I want to do with my life. Because I, as I briefly mentioned in my intro, I was in a bit of a state of despondency, to be honest, uh, because things were looking quite grim. And just to give you a couple of factoids that I briefly alluded to in the intro, I discovered that the Syrian civil war, uh, the roots of that lay in climate change, because from 2006 to 2010, Syria had the largest and the worst drought in its recorded history, which uh, meant that about 60% of crops failed in that country and 80% of livestock died. Now, this is really cataclysmic. Just think about that for a second. And what that meant was that 2 million destitute farmers who had nothing uh, left the rural areas, moved to the cities, where, of course, there were no jobs waiting for them, no services. And when the Arab Spring movement happened, they also started protesting. Um, and an authoritarian government that they had also couldn't really do much. They uh, tried to, they do, did the only thing they knew uh, in a situation like this, which was try to crush them. But these people had nothing to lose and they protested even more and the government became even more heavy handed. And lo and behold, the entire thing cascaded into a complete civil war and the entire country was essentially cleaved asunder. And it's a very shocking and very grim tale uh, of how a country can be destroyed. Syria is a semi-arid country. So is Pakistan. So are many other countries in Asia and Africa where, frankly, billions of people live. Um, and, uh, you know, this was very shocking because I was like, if it can happen there, it's obviously going to happen everywhere. I had the fortune slash misfortune of reading Bill McKibben's excellent book called Earth, which is E-A-A-R-T-H, and it's a very clever title because Bill McKibben demonstrated that the planet that he was born in is no longer, this is no longer the same planet because the amount of carbon that we have now spewed into the atmosphere has transformed this planet. Um, and, uh, you know, that's uh, when I discovered what uh, the, the person who's considered to be the greatest um, climate scientist that the human species has ever produced uh, Jim Hansen, uh, who runs, or at least at the time used to run uh, the Goddard Institute, which is a NASA and Columbia University joint center based in New York. Um, and Jim Hansen in either 1987 or 1988 gave uh, a testimony to Congress where he outlined what, the kind of chaos that climate change is going to cause over the coming decades with the kind of clarity of a Swarovski crystal. Uh, it's incredible, you know, the quality of the climate science. Um, and as things have been unfolding, it's, it's been the same. In fact, now we have a study that says that even within climate scientists, it's a range of outcomes that they say. The, uh, the, the best case outcomes, which are still pretty very grim, um, what is happening is actually, it turns out that the worst case outcomes are what is being proven to be true not even the, the best case within the very grim uh, arena of climate prognostication. So uh, when I read all of those things, and again, the Arab Spring, by the way, the roots lie in uh, a global heating event that happened in 2010, and NASA came up with a report later about this, uh, which led to forest fires in Russia. Russia's wheat crop uh, you know, suffered, and Ukraine suffered uh, a massive blow, and uh, because there was a major yield decrease, um, there were export controls and global wheat prices escalated 
quite dramatically. And so net wheat importing countries such as Egypt, um, they suddenly couldn't subsidize uh, the bread, which, you know, very poor people, that was the one thing they had, subsidized bread. And so the roots of the Arab Spring also lie in uh, climate change, right? And I was like, this is going to happen everywhere. And, and, and you know, nobody's going to uh, be able to survive. And if this is happening at one degree of warming, uh, and the climate agreement, uh, the, the Paris Agreement, which had just recently happened, says that, you know, we'll drive for 1.5, but, you know, we've got this two uh, degrees uh, guardrail. I was like, even if we do it at 1.5, which there doesn't seem to be the case at all, and everybody's warning that we've passed shot that, uh, shot past that, even at two degrees, even at 1.5 degrees, this planet is going to be in a lot of trouble. Um, and that's what we're seeing now. We're just at like 1.2 degrees of warming and look at 2023. Um, so, you know, again, bringing the conversation from this, you know, very grim, uh, kind of a discussion and discourse into sort of hope and optimism. Uh, you know, when I discovered all these things about then organic agriculture, and then, you know, very soon after uh, it was starting to be called regenerative agriculture, which again is not a new term. It's been around for a few decades, but suddenly it started becoming like uh, the word that people who were doing like more ecological, biological, systemic leaf positive farming were starting to use and a bunch of books started to come out a bunch of studies started to come out um so it was, a, it was an excellent time sort of the beginning of the curve if you will um and you know i knew that this is what my sort of calling and mission in life was there was just one problem which was that i didn't have any land to do farming on so just a you know tensy problem uh and so um what i then decided to do was you know obviously get my ducks in a row, really know what I'm talking about, and then started to try to convince uh, people with farmland, which is when I uh, went to my father-in-law, who is a captain of industry, but uh, has a little bit of a passion and agriculture is a hobby for him. So he has some agricultural land in southern Punjab in, in Pakistan. And I sort of gave him some uh, presentations, had a series of conversations with him, and finally, you know, he uh, uh, he agreed, you know, very graciously. He said that, you know, one one of my farmlands. Why don't we try to implement these practices? And why don't you sort of take the reins and let's see if we can make this work. And let's see if what the science and the practitioners are saying and doing. How does that sort of uh, work out in our setting? And so that's how I started doing this in about 2017 issues when I began, not knowing much. It was a massively steep learning curve, as anyone can imagine. Um, but, you know, knock on wood, you know, we learned by doing, by swimming with the sharks. And um, thankfully, uh, you know, it's been, uh, it's been a really fascinating uh, journey and we've you know starting for the past couple of years we've had some you know really remarkable successes um, from everything from the amount of carbon that we've been able to organic matter we've been able to build and carbon we've been able to sequester very visibly in these very sandy soils um, to you know in handling things like insect pressures um, uh, yield and quality specs of the things we're growing and just to give a brief backdrop of the kind of uh, soils, if you can call it that, uh, that we are working in and the kind of topography and climate 
that we are working in, we are in the heart of the Thal Desert. Now, that's T-H-A-L. And the Thal Desert is uh, it's a very large desert. It's part of what was once called the Great Indian Desert, the massive desert landscape um, that is uh, obviously very hostile uh, to, to agriculture and life in general. One can imagine it's complete beet sand. That's the kind of quote-unquote soil. Um, and I love this quote by Ray Archuleta, who's an excellent soil biologist in the U.S., uh, used to be with the U.S. Uh, DA. And, uh, you know, there's this great pithy quote, without roots, it's geology. And it's basically mostly all geology over there. It's all sand. Um, it can get very hot in the winters, 48, 50 degrees Celsius. And in the winters, it can almost, uh, you know, it, sometimes it crosses over into minus one, minus two degrees Celsius as well, but usually around like the zero, one, two degrees, which is very cold, you know, and you get like frost events at night. So again, very challenging environs to be operating in. Um, and, you know, agriculture is largely possible there through canal irrigation systems, um, which, uh, is a uh, is, is something how agriculture has been possible in much of this northern uh, South Asia, northern Indian subcontinent um, through rivers, these mighty rivers flowing in from Tibet and the Himalayas, and then a, a series of canal systems that mushroom out of there that have been built over hundreds of years. Uh, various civilizations did them, the Indus civilization, and then throughout year, uh, you know, the, the, the centuries and millennia, different civilizations, the Mughals did it, uh, the British Empire in, built on that. Then after Pakistan and India became independent, they further built on that. So today, Pakistan has the largest man-made canal irrigation system in the world. And uh, and that's what make, uh, makes agriculture even possible in these very challenging environs. It's a really, and you've, you've touched on so many um, topics there, and I, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated. I've just been listening. I thought I'd just leave you because it's so, um, it, it connects together so beautifully, everything that you're talking about, in terms of we started off that segment about the cotton crop being wiped out by the pest, by the bollworm. And there was something about that that threaded through all of it, the idea that your experience kind of led you to investigate, well, is this nature or is this uh, something other that's going on here? And you find that the, the, the crop that's wiped out is the GMO crop, is the, the action that has been taken to control pests has been the reason that the, the crop in the end is not resilient to the pests. And I think that that threads so beautifully into the idea that we you sort of mentioned it yourself, you at that time had this understanding that organic agriculture meant lower yields. And it was something that was done because it, maybe it was um, for the wealthy, maybe it's for health reasons, but it's certainly not for the benefit of the farmer and the farmland in terms of crop yields. And yet the studies that you looked into really sort of contested that and, and why would that be? And then the Rodale Institute, the work there that's demonstrating that the organic growing is actually higher yield in the drought. I think that's the really interesting point there, that it's the drought season, the, the, the worst sort of conditions, the more challenging conditions 
that that's coming out on top. And I think that's the point with all of this is nature is this kind of self-balancing and it will go through the extremes with more consistency than what we could possibly try to control. And through trying to control those um, outcomes, we were sort of we're losing that natural balance. So I really enjoy how, how your journey has threaded through to this. And, and I, I kind of think that then all of, all of those sort of catastrophic issues that really do, you know, you can tie war to climate, to food shortages. It's just a natural. When, when we are comfortable and every day we, we sort of sit maybe in our offices, maybe we're going shopping, we're seeing items on the shelves, we're not really clocking our dependency to the land. But as soon as those um, dependencies are sort of cut, there's a break in the supply chain. We, we, every single time we can tie that back in some way to how we're treating the land. And, and it's a kind of, it's a chicken and egg thing, isn't it? When it then comes down to, well, is it the drought that's causing the food shortage or is it the land management that's causing the drought? And the same for the forest fire. And, and then is it climate change that, that's the issue or is it prior to that? Is that a symptom of the, the, the way that we've uh, neglected the soils, the way that we've released all of the carbon from the soil? And that then brings us all the way around to, to, to where you've left us at, which is you're eager and keen to, to put this theory into practice, to, to take all of this reading, all of this learning and all of this hope and actually put it into action on this land in Pakistan that you are describing now is it's not really soil. It's not got the carbon in it. So you're, you're, you're working on the, the, the clean slate. I think many people across the globe that are regenerating lands, they wouldn't describe that land as sand or dirt to begin with. It might be close, but you really are sort of dependent, like you say, on the, the irrigation system that, that's been put in place to grow. So I'd love to sort of now take this in that direction of, okay, you've, you've gone through eye-opening sort of disastrous um, chaos. You've found some hope and now you've put that into action. What have you learned? How, 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 so, so let's continue with your journey on the farm um, and, and tell us, because I'm sure that no matter how much passion and enthusiasm there is and even how much knowledge there is, you cannot take a site that is degraded and is not really got carbon in the soil and then just click your fingers and fantastic, it's now, it's regenerated. This is a journey that's filled with challenges. So if you could maybe explain a little more about how you became a farmer, how you got your hands in the soil, um, and, and what did you have to do to get this land to grow? And could you, could you maybe describe how it was previously used and, and talk us through the challenges of, of getting crops to grow there in the first place? That's, uh, you know, the, the question you've asked are, are spot on, um, but I will, but it's, it's a lot to unpack there. So let me um, begin with, let's begin with the journey. And then you also mentioned something about the chicken and egg problem. And I'd love to touch upon that in this uh, uh, sort of inter interview conversation as well, because it really is a 
in some ways a chicken neck problem. And in fact, I would say between the two, we actually kind of know it is human uh, mishandling of, of land management globally that is the cause of many of our current problems, if not most, probably actually most of our current problems, right? Um, really everything from mass scale deforestation, we're now at peak trees, we should have six trillion trees. Scientists think we now have less than three trillion left, and we are, you know, it's an escalating deforestation that's happening. We've destroyed soils. Most people think that uh, the, uh, you know, it's cars, so transportation and uh, energy production that is to blame for most of climate change. And obviously, they play a massive role, but it's also land use change that plays an equally profound role, which includes everything from deforestation to uh, heavy tilling over many decades that has released uh, so much carbon and put it in the atmosphere from soils, right? In the many parts of the world where you had significant amounts of organic matter and carbon in the soils, maybe 7%, 8%, you're now left with like 1.5%, 1%, right? So uh, it's been very degenerative and that carbon from the atmosphere, from sorry, from the soils has been released and is now in the atmosphere, right? So um, absolutely, it's, 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 it's a human mishandling, but also correspondingly, we have the power to reverse these things and we can actually do it much quicker than what most people would think. Uh, some of the thinkers who've hugely influenced me and many others are um, physicist Milan Milan, uh, scientist Walter Yana from Australia, uh, who both showcased that the water cycle is far more important than even the carbon cycle. If we can fix that, we can also fix climate change as an ancillary benefit which means we need to have green cover. We have lots of naked soils all over the world, naked landscapes. If we can re-green them, and there are tools and techniques today that allow us to do it uh, that didn't exist even a few short years ago, and certainly not even a couple of decades ago, uh, that we can re-green mass scale parts of the world, whether they're farmlands, but also non-farmlands, and we can change the hydrology. We can have far more cloud cover, far more rain, um, and in turn bounce back far more heat uh, from this planet and sequester you know, boatloads of, of carbon and fix the climate problem as well, while also enhancing biodiversity because we are also living through the sixth mass extinction. So just quickly wanted to mention uh, that because you, uh, you know, hit the nail on the head right there with the comment of the chicken and egg. Now, coming back to the journey and farming in pure sand. So the core thing I realized is that if you, and this obviously I'm seeing now after many challenges in the beginning, if you have access to water, it's a profound blessing uh, because that allows you, and whether that's water that comes through, uh, you know, broadly the, the rainfall patterns of the, the region or the biome that you're in, or it's water that you get through, uh, for us, it's canal irrigation systems. Uh, but if you have water, um, it's a profound blessing because if you were to pick between water and, and good soil, you know, water is far more valuable because you can create soil. Usually, I mean, it's, it's, it's virtually impossible that you would have good soil in a place that doesn't have water because they sort of come together. The Sahara Desert used to be a very lush tropical rainforest until something like, I think, 10,000-ish years ago, where slight uh, changes in weather patterns uh, meant that very, very quickly, maybe within a few decades or centuries, it just turned into a complete desert, right? Um, so uh, usually, you know, water comes with, you know, 
the, the lushness, the verdant nature of a landscape or the soil and so on. Um, so having water, what we learned is, I'll give you an example. We did an experiment with, because one of the tools, so regenerative agriculture, just to take, uh, to broaden the aperture, regenerative agriculture is a broad term that has within it many different tools and techniques, right? It's not one thing, it's not a couple of things, it's a bunch of different tools and techniques. And, and here I'd like to mention my core philosophical disposition on VGENAC. It's very similar to what I would call the Cara Fitzgerald, Dr. Cara Fitzgerald diet. So there's a fantastic scientist, slight segue, in the US who did an incredible study. Her name is Cara Fitzgerald, and you can, anyone can look this up. And what she did was over a few weeks, uh, she wanted to map out changes in biological age. And so she had a control group, and then she had you know, the, the, the group that she gave a series of uh, daily prescriptions to. And these were all lifestyle and diet changes, everything from sleep, exercise, to predominantly the kinds of foods you're eating, certain herbs like rosemary, having certain amounts of protein, having things like beets. Um, and these are all things that having certain amount of greens and, uh, you know, sort of lettuces, uh, not lettuces, but kales and cabbages. Um, so she gives this entire prescription of something like 13, 14 things that you have to do every single day, green tea, garlic. And within just a few short weeks, um, so I think it was four weeks or six weeks, the people who were doing this, their biological age markers reduced by more than two years. It was that quick, right? It's massive. Um, and I take the same approach in regen ad. Rather than doing one or two things, I often tell this to people. Let's say you have a room full of, of people and one of them says, you know, all of them are like, you know, I want to do, I want to change my, my health and my life for the better. One of them says, you know what, from now on, I'm not getting enough sleep. So I'm going to make sure I get 78 hours every day. And I'm going to sleep at the same time, wake up at the same time. Another person says, you know what, I'm, I don't exercise at all. So I'm going to start doing some cardio. Another person says, you know what, I don't exercise either. I'm going to start doing some, some weights um, and some strength training. And another person says, you know what, my diet sucks. So I'm going to start trying to add greens into my diet. Another person says, you know what, I'm not getting enough protein. I'm going to start adding enough protein in my diet. Another person says, you know what, I'm not taking any herbs like turmeric or rosemary and stuff. I'm going to start adding that to my diet. Um, so similarly, each one says, you know, I'm going to do this one thing or these couple of things. But if one person does all of these things together, your health and, you know, all properties 99.9% .9 of the time is going to dramatically change in a very short amount of time. And region ag, the, the conclusion I've reached is very similar. The land is very similar. The more tools and techniques you can deploy and obviously do them smartly knowing what you're doing, that's obviously very important. The much more rapid your results are going to be. And in one trial plot, we had a sprinkler irrigation system on 10 acres where we were growing. Uh, we grew uh, sort of multi-species perennial plus annual fodder grass mix. So it was grass and some herbs and other things. So like Mombasa grass, roach grass, mixed with some sort of seasonal annuals. Um, and uh, and one year we did something called holistic planned grazing, also called managed grazing, where you move the animals. So you cluster the animals together um, so that they just eat in one area rather than going all over the land and picking and choosing. 
Um, and there's a lot of solid science that says that if you do it this way and then you keep moving them, it's called a paddock from paddock to paddock. So you determine sort of you break out your land into uh, sort of uh, uh, paddocks and you keep moving the animals from paddock to paddock. And ideally you do it in a way that by the time, you know, you're done with the last paddock, paddock number one has regenerated and regenerated and those uh, grasses have grown back to a level where they can be grazed again. So you should divide up the land such and have enough amount of animals that can, that, that land mass can, can, can hold. Um, and this way, by the way, the science shows that you can have, if you don't have the grasses eaten all the way to the bottom, like you have them grazed, let's say about 50% or so, they regenerate very quickly. They grow very quickly because they don't have to shed a lot of roots. And, and as the animals are grazing, they're also urinating and manuring there. Um, it's an incredibly regenerative system. And then if you, you know, add a bit of compost, compost extracts, some other biological inoculants, some stuff that feeds, um, which we sort of try to fertigate, some stuff that feeds the soil. So things, uh, some amendments that we make, such as fish hydrolysate, some other fermented biologicals. You can regenerate land so quickly that within one year, uh, I'm not kidding you, in one year, this sand, this pure beach sand or desert sand turned into a deep chocolate brown colored soil, which was like mind blowing, uh, even for, for us, because we did not expect, <clears throat> excuse me, we did not expect it to happen this quickly. Um, and, you know, we saw it with our own eyes. It's, it's just incredible. Um, so I think the, you know, one of the core conclusions that we've reached after obviously much trial and error, educating ourselves, re-educating ourselves, de-educating and re-educating ourselves again, because in the beginning we had enormous amounts of failures. Um, just the science of compost is, there's a lot of complexity there. The compost that we were earlier on making were very bacterially dominant, which is not that great. Uh, it might be better than nothing, um, but what you want to have is more balanced compost or more even more fungally dominant composts. Uh, so just learning that, learning the science of that, learning how to make those fungally dominant composts. Currently, we have two different types of compost that we're making that are fungally dominant. And then we also have one more bacterially dominant um, vermicompost system that we're making which over time we also want to make more fungally dominant, but it's not physiologically possible for us to do so now. Uh, you know, there's just so much science, so many things we have to learn uh, with the kinds of nutrition we give, how we deliver it, because we're not regenerative organic for the whole farm. Uh, for, uh, so again, let's go back to what was the farm? What is the farm now? What do we grow there? Uh, because, you know, that was embedded in the question you asked. So, when we joined, this farm was growing sugarcane. It had some old orchards of mango and citrus, and then was growing some fodder crops here and there, um, some wheat. Um, what we wanted to do was uh, we wanted to, but it had some acreages that were just like sort of barren desert where nothing was growing. Uh, and this was part of the plan for the farm anyway, as I joined or even before I joined, the plan was made that, uh, we're going to get central pivots on these like barren scapes and uh, and grow sugar cane there. And this was the decision that, you know, again, as I mentioned, the board had made. Uh, it was not my choice to grow cane there. But with central pivots, we'd done a study on another farmland, my father-in-law's, where the first central pivot was installed. Where compared to flood irrigation, which is the norm for irrigation in Pakistan, and it's sublimely wasteful. 
and quite degenerative and destructive, not just in terms of wasting water, but also in terms of what it does for the soil and so on. Um, uh, Sandro Pivot uses at least 50 to 60% less water for growing sugarcane than flood irrigation water, which is you know fantastic. Um, and then my thesis was that if we add a regenerative lens and we're able to build soil carbon, we can actually reduce the amount of um, of water even further quite significantly. And here I'll, I'll quote a couple of sort of studies and examples. We, the science is telling us that for every 1% of organic matter that you add to soil in the first top six inches, uh, the soil can hold about 27,000 gallons of water for every 1% of organic water, which is massive. So we can create dams in soils all across the world. What this also means is that it creates enormous climate resilience. So if you have a drought-like situation, your water holding, your, your soil has water, which means your crops will continue to perform. But also if you have these major you know, cloud burst events, which are happening all over the world. They happened in Pakistan last year, where we had major flooding in the country and something like, I think, either 10 or 20 million people were impacted. It cost about $40 billion of economic loss. It was very cataclysmic for much of the, for in many parts of the country where this happened. But also a few months after that, in late 2022, we had major flooding events in California. And there are pictures from aerial shots of like heli from helicopters where you have entire farmland in, Box well, in California, just like in Pakistan a few months before that, which was entirely flooded. So huge losses for farmers, for food security in the country and the world. Um, and yet there's this fantastic civil piece on this where you had pockets of farmers there are a couple examples of farmers that were regenerative. They were either tree fruit or tree nut growers, and they were managing their land regeneratively such that their alleys had a lot of organic matter and carbon in the soils. And they were not flooded at all. So their neighboring orchards are entirely underwater. And these guys are not. And they're side by side. They get the same amount of rain. Why is that? Because the water just percolated down. Um, so that is the enormous beauty of soil, or one of the aspects or facets and there are many of the beauty of soil and having a living um, uh, soil food web, having organic matter on all these things are linked. If you, you know, if you have a living soil food web is how you're going to sequester carbon. Um, so that's one example. But I also want to give you another really fascinating fact, which is about mulch. And a company I was recently speaking to, they're Danish. They have a really cool soil moisture probe that tells you how much moisture there is at different depths. So accordingly, you can run your irrigation. So it's especially useful for irrigated cropland, whether it's row crops or more perennials like tree crops. And they did a study in Peru in the desert. There's an orchard, again, irrigated on drip, um, where what they did was, they, and these guys wanted to see the impact of moisture conservation or water conservation with mulch. So, some of the rows for, for these tree crops were mulched on drip and some were unmulched on drip. So we know that drip saves about 50, 55% water compared to flood irrigation. But given that, just compared to uh, the unmulched drip, uh, you know, tree crops that were getting watered with drip and the mulched one, the mulched ones saved 40% more water than the un unmulched ones. 
so and mulch in terms further also it suppresses weeds it ultimately because that mulch degrades and becomes part of the soil so as it gets digested it becomes part of the organic matter as well so it has other cascading benefits as well right so just a couple of these examples of how you know there is so much uh, you know positive uh, benefits that various regenerative tools can do uh, and, I, and I often say I like to pair regenerative tools with cutting edge, the right kinds of cutting edge technological tools, such as drip irrigation, central pivot irrigation, drones. We'll, we can talk about that some uh, as well in, in this conversation. I think drones are a mind blowing tool um, and they are the future of, um, of top quality, the right kind of agriculture. Because what drones have done is that they allow, and they can be done on tree crops, shrub crops, row crops, whether it's corn or wheat or, or soy or sugarcane uh, or, or, or lentil crops, whatever it is, drones, so these modern agriculture drones, and there's some companies that are incredible, they have created these amazing uh, sort of sprinkler or fogger systems that, are, that have created like these droplet sizes that are so tiny they're like mist and they've engineered it such that when that those droplets sort of they go all over and they coat the leaf surface of the plant and it's an amazing delivery mechanism for endophytic bacterial inoculants biostimulants so you'll be like you know oh well drones may, might be great for pesticide application they don't have they can be great for all of these amazing regenerative tools and the science uh, has exploded on biostimulants on biological inoculants um, there are companies doing amazing things, but also obviously a farmer can make many biological inoculants themselves as well. Um, but but I also very firmly believe that some companies have some really cutting edge, game changing products. Um, so there are some people who are like, oh, we don't trust the the big corporation. Um, you know, do everything yourself. I think there's enormous value. There's a lot of stuff that farmers should be doing DIY, depending on their scale. Um, but also, I think that there's a lot. Um, that with these with the right kind of products that are regenerative in nature that I think we should we should uh, purchase farmers should purchase if they have access to them because those things can dramatically increase crops therefore enhancing global food security uh, but they also increase resilience to diseases and pests they make the plants much healthier they are able to even sequester more carbon because some of these products increase the photosynthetic capacity of plants the more photosynthesis a plant does, some of it it uses to grow bigger, have bigger leaves, you know, grow stronger. But a lot of that extra photosynthesis means that there's more root exudates that are getting out of the roots and feeding the different bacteria and creating a much bigger soil food web. And as we know, the more, the higher the soil food web is in terms of, you know, the more bacteria and fungi and nematodes, all of that is carbon. Everything that eats, poops, that poop is carbon rich, all of that is building soil. Um, and so, you know, I'm a big fan of using cutting the right kinds of cutting edge technology um, with the right kinds of philosophical sort of mindset that which, you know, obviously, as I mentioned, should be regenerative in its nature and systemic. Um, so I think I, <laughs> I'm on my 10th digression here. <laughs> so, just sort of coming back to what the farm was doing and sort of what we started doing. So when we took the reins over, uh, we continued with, you know, what the board wanted in terms of, you know, having central pivots, those were installed. So we now have three central pivots growing sugarcane in terms of, uh, you know, the 
how I wanted to convert the farm or, or sort of, you know, adding that regenerative lens, um, we wanted to create systemic changes in how we do these crops. So in terms of orchards, uh, we both expanded the orchards, the scale of them. We added drip lines. Um, we, you know, make a bunch of biologicals ourselves, which I've mentioned, biological, so fermented biologicals, things like fish hydrolysate, certain other biologically fermented nutrients, composts, compost extracts, and compost teas. Um, you know, those can all be fertigated. Some of them are sprayed on. Um, then some, one of the things, and it's always a continuous thing, right? One of the things that we really want to do, we've done it on some of our zones, like our banana. For the first time, we made bananas succeed in the Thal Desert. It was thought impossible. And we have, you know, knock on wood, really healthy, amazing banana growing there on a few acres. We did for the first time a ginger trial this year. And, you know, because a ginger is a very uh, carbon-rich, organic matter-rich, soil-loving plant. It's a rhizome. Um, so we're growing ginger in the desert under sort of these black shade net tunnels with really amazing soil that we've given through this fungally dominant compost. And we've had earthworms, like native earthworms come in. You'll find earthworm uh, or castings all over the soil um, because there are the native earthworms, at least where we are at, they leave like a layer of castings, which are like these tiny little orbs um, that are like a grayish brown color. And they're all over the soil. And it's, it's like this incredible carbon-rich soil that we have. And the ginger that's growing is super healthy. From a local context point of view, just to briefly mention, ginger in Pakistan is all imported. Pakistan is a country that has a perennial balance of payments crisis. So it's a great sort of service to the broader socioeconomy for any crops that we can grow indigenously. And so we're showing that, you know, and we're not we're not pioneers in this. A couple of years ago, a few people started growing ginger and one of the government research, ag research bodies was helping them uh, grow ginger. But this year they said we're growing it in the harshest of the environments um, because these guys are growing it in, in more cooler. Some of the other people on a small, on, they're all growing on smaller scales in hoop houses. They're growing it in relatively cooler, relatively cooler environs um, in more foothills of the Himalayas type of places. Um, and, and the AU research uh, organization, you know, where the scientists are promoting this ginger for indigenous cultivation, they said that, you know, again, knock on wood, we have the healthiest ginger in all of Pakistan that is today growing. Um, and so, you know, that's very heartening. We're very grateful to the heavens for this. But it just shows the enormous power of having regenerative tools. Um, and, of course, marrying them with certain technology like this, hoop houses, the black shade cloths, we're growing it on drip. Um, so, obviously, that uh, the technology aspect is, is there as well. Um, uh, but, but the framework is very much, you know, a regenerative one. Um, so, you know, this is a very core part of the economic thesis that I always tell people. From the get-go, regenerative is superior. This is not something that's long gestating because some people think, oh, it's better. It might be better for you. There's a Boston Consulting Group, BCG, as many of the listeners will know. It's one of the top consulting firms in the world. You know, MBB, McKinsey, Bain, BCG are considered like the gold standard of consulting firms. Although, you know, there's a British economist who I do like a great deal, Mariana Mazzucato at the UCL. Uh, and she's written a book that's scathing about the entire consulting industry. Uh, but I think that, you know, 
it's, it's a bit of a mixed bag. There, there are some projects they do where they do really do uh, very good work, uh, but like everything else, you know, there are always problems with you know big corporations. Um, but I, I digress. Coming back to BCG, they came up with a study on regen ag recently, and they said that uh, you know companies need to support farmers. Um, because it will take two, three, four years for the results to come in, but ultimately you can get higher yields and, and better outcomes. And I, with all due respect, disagree with that because I think that in most scenarios and cases, um, there are regenerative tools that from the get-go will give you a high ROI. It's just about deploying those. Some tools, I do agree, are more long-gestaining. Um, but I think that that's not the case because, as I mentioned earlier, Regen Ag is a very broad spectrum tool. Um, I think, how would I say this? If let's come back to the humans, you know, uh, the analogy that I love giving. So, if a human is very chronically sleep deprived um, and they start, let's say, eating rosemary, and we know rosemary is very potent compounds such as rosemaranic acid, which are anti-carcinogen. They're very long, you know, they're enormous benefits, but those will probably uh, reveal themselves more long-term. But this person is very sleep deprived, is getting four hours a day and just increases it to seven to eight hours. And suddenly their mental health transforms, their overall health transforms. Obviously that is the tool that will give them the, you know, high, highest ROI, if you will, or the, or the quickest return, right? So it's about the different tools that need to be deployed in different contexts. I firmly believe that um, some tools are more long gesting. There's no doubt, and they should be done as well. And I'm all for farmers being supported by governments, by corporations. I think, uh, and every country is very unique. In the U.S., we have the, one of the biggest impediments and problems is the crop insurance system, which means that if you're doing a bunch of regenerative tools, you no longer qualify for crop insurance systems because they want things to be done in an ABC format, which is usually heavily chemically dependent, and only then are you eligible for crop insurance if your crop fails, which is, excuse my French, a very silly and ridiculous system. Um, so that needs to be obviously transformed. So every country is very unique. Every country has unique circumstances in terms of government regulations, policies, how the corporates that are buying crops uh, behave. So every country will have its own dynamics. But I generally believe that Regen Act from the get-go can give you superior results. Uh, with our orchard crops, by the way, we are mostly regenerative organic for most of our crops, which means we're not deploying synthetics at all. We have seen that we are able to tackle uh, pest pressures, uh, you know, with things just by increasing our uh, the health of our plants. And here I want to briefly mention some very important cutting-edge entom entomology research. Entomology is the study of insects. In the 1980s, there was a French scientist named Francis Chabasson who postulated a theory called tropobiosis, where he said that if plants are super healthy, they can be immune from pests. Uh, but, you know, in the modern world, or, or recently, there's a fantastic entomologist in the U.S. named uh, Dr. Thomas Dijkstra, and he has, uh, his sort of studies have shown that when plants are super healthy, they actually are completely uh, resilient or, or from, from pests. So the pests that normally would trouble them uh, will not attack them because really healthy plants, um, they usually uh, have compounds that they can release that are very harmful to the pest, that can give the pest anything from a tummy ache to actually kill the pest. And so pests are really smart. They look at things in infrared 
and they can actually see which plant is healthy and which plant is not. And I think it was in the 1960s, uh, a person called Dan Kruber who said that uh, insects are nature's garbage collectors. They really only go for plants that are very unhealthy and some very uh, uh, gung-ho uh, sort of advocates in the region movement will even say that if a plant has been attacked by a pest, that means that the produce, whether it's a tomato or, or an apple or whatever, that it's growing is unfit for human consumption. <laughs> so well, I don't think that that's a very wise uh, approach to, to have from a food security point of view. But I certainly believe that we can and fairly quickly get plants to a level where they will be at least mostly um, resistant to most pests and diseases also. Yeah, it's incredibly... Um, it's. It's very inspiring, but it, it's also, it feels very concrete, doesn't it? It feels very, um, you know, all based around one area. You know, you uplift the health of the soil. You get the carbon in there. You get the microbiology thriving. And then everything else kind of it strengthens alongside and it lifts itself up. And there is so much information that you've offered us today. And I'm mindful of the time, so I'm not going to ask any more questions and uh, hold you back. But um, yeah, if there is anything that you would like to just quickly add um, to, to close things off in terms of people maybe learning more about what you're doing. Absolutely, sure. I have a, you know, five-ish minutes, so um, you know, with your last question, I'll just sort of round things up um, and, and sort of finish off here. Uh, one of the, a couple of examples I would like to mention of some of the other things that we're doing, we're planting thousands of trees. We want to plant, plant thousands more because we, as I mentioned earlier with Walter Yana and Milan Milan and their work that they're showing, if we have enough tree cover across the world, we can change rainfall patterns. And that's something we very, very firmly believe in. One of our goals is to have a two-acre Miyawaki forest on our farm, uh, hopefully. Um, and it might be the largest Miyawaki forest on a farm in the world. Or it might not be, but, you know, from what we know, it, it might be. Uh, and I think that that would be a great testament to you know, sort of our belief that having beneficial habitats is so vital. Um, and also in terms of creating the, the right kind of micro or transforming the microclimate. I'll give you an example with our chili crop this year. This year, for the first time, we grew red chilies and on some of our acreage as a sort of high-value crop. And in Pakistan, the recommendation is that prophylactically farmers should apply pesticide every single week, um, which is obviously very costly as well and obviously very destructive and degenerative um, because a pesticide is an equal opportunity killer. Uh, it's... Um, one of the most destructive things that humans do in Europe, and there are studies, it's called insect Armageddon, that in the past 25 years, Europe has lost 75% uh, of its insect population. And scientists think that the core uh, reason for this, the core culprit is uh, the usage of pesticides. And Europe, by the way, has you know much higher regulations than a country like the United States. And yet we are seeing this sort of mass scale destruction uh, and, and luckily, you know, knock on wood, thankfully, on our farm this year in the chili crop, we didn't have to apply a single pesticide application because beneficial insects, you know, galore. We have, you know, everything from lace wings to ladybugs 
and, and a plethora of others uh, that come in and you know do the job for us. So having biodiversity is just so crucial and it's an economic boon along with being an ecological boon. Similarly, intercropping is something that we are very heavily focused on for things like sugar cane, uh, which incidentally, by the way, cane can be a semi-perennial. In Pakistan, we don't take too many ratoons. A ratoon is when you cut the crop and it grows again. In places like Australia and Brazil, uh, you know, they do that. Uh, sugar, once planted, a sugarcane can last for seven to ten years, which is amazing because all this time the roots are there. It's sequestering the carbon. It's fantastic. Um, but in Pakistan, that's not the case because nutrient management uh, is very poor. The soils are sans carbon in Pakistan. And, and so our emphasis is to make soils so much better and have the right kinds of micronutrients. I also believe, by the way, in, in the right kind of region, ag requires the right kind of micronutrients um, because micronutrient deficiencies are a major cause uh, of problems in the world. And perhaps we leave that for another day, but having the right kind of uh, sort of organically chelated uh, micronutrients, usually in a reduced form. Um, so re oxidation reduction, just like everyone's familiar with pH, there's another spectrum like pH called EH, which is oxidation reduction. And some of these metallic nutrients like iron and copper um, and molybdenum, they are not plant available in the oxidized form. So they need to be reduced. Um, and, and, and you know if we do that and we provide them, there's an entire science of what I call regenerative nutrients. If you give them the right way, you ensconce them with biology, with you know, uh, sort of the right kinds of bi biological inoculants and biostimulants, the performance can be incredible. You need micro doses, and it's amazing. They can actually, you know, the plants will be so healthy, they'll sequester more carbon and so on. So those are some of the things we're working on. And then intercropping with cane is something that we very heavily believe in. And with most crops, we want to have heavy intercropping with our trees and, and synergistic intercrops, not antagonistic ones. So that's another avenue. I think there's enormous scope for all over the world. We have to start getting away from monocultures because they are frankly, by their very nature, quite degenerative in most cases. Um, so, you know, those are some things that we are working on. And, uh, and, and, and as we continue to experiment and move on, uh, these are some of our, our core goals. And I really hope that we can succeed in many of these sort of newfangled experiments, uh, which we hope, you know, are kind of based on a lot of research and science, but we hope we can execute on them. Um, so these are the things that sort of we're working on. I have decided to uh, create a small consulting firm to help farmers and especially corporates that invest in ag land or have ag supply where they want farmers to do a quick transition. Um, I believe that a quick transition is possible if you do it the right way. And you know, having spent six years of heavily researching this stuff and, and practicing it, I, I'm hopeful that you know I can contribute uh, at least a little bit in this direction. Um, and uh, you know, that's sort of. Uh, summary of, of where things are headed uh, from my side. Um, and yeah, I, I uh, would urge all of the listeners to do their own research, uh, to start a garden if they can, if they have, even if they have a balcony, they can do it in planters. If they have a small little garden in the back of the front yard, that would be amazing. They should definitely do that because just working with soil is amazing. Um, and also to uh, sort of, you know, if, if they live in a country where, where they can vote, vote for, candidates that want to craft, you know, that have an agricultural policy and a land use policy that makes sense, that's regenerative, more than even energy and transport policies, which are also very important, by the way. I think the land use policies can provide us the quickest uh, sort of bang for buck all over the world. Um, and those are some of the key thoughts that I would sort of want to end with.
and keep us in your sort of thoughts and prayers. <laughs> That's fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing all of this information today. And I, I'm really delighted that you started a consultancy because there's so much that people can um, learn from you. You, you, you know, you've you've kind of offered this outline. There's there's going to be a lot of questions um, that that that's brought up in people's minds um, in terms of, okay, well, this is a topic I need to research further. So that's fantastic. And the hope that you're offering in terms of the um, speed that, that land can be regenerated and that soil can be brought back to life and the crops can be, uh, yeah, yeah, it's all, all very, very wonderful, very wonderful information. And thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. It's my pleasure being here. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to this episode of We Are Carbon. New episodes are added every other Tuesday, so don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date. It's a huge help to the show if you'd like to add a thumbs up or a review on whichever platform you're listening on. And let's keep figuring this all out together. Together.